Let's bow in prayer, shall we? Father, we turn to you with open hearts, eager minds. Father, make our hearts tender as well, that we would have a sensitivity to your word, that we would have a sensitivity to the leading and ministering aspect of the Holy Spirit. Father, we're so thankful to be a part of your church, and we recognize that you are at work displaying your glory around the world in many different ways. Father, may we honor you through the listening and the obeying of your word. May you build your church and may be our joy to grow in our understanding what it is to be part of your great kingdom. Father, we commit this time to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I imagine that somewhere along the line, uh, perhaps in your middle school years or high school years, in a literature class, you encountered the poem about the blind man and the elephant. Do you know that one? Uh, Let me reread it for you. It's interesting, I think. It was six men of Indostan, to learning much inclined, who went to see the elephant, though all of them were blind, that each by observation might satisfy his mind. The first approached the elephant, and happening to fall against his broad and sturdy side, at once began to bawl, God bless me, but the elephant is very like a wall. The second, feeling of the tusk, cried, Ho, what have we here, so very round and smooth and sharp? To me, tis mighty clear, this wonder of an elephant is very like a spear. The third approached the animal, and happening to take... The squirming trunk within his hands, thus boldly up and spake, I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a snake. The fourth reached out his eager hand and felt about the knee. What most this wondrous beast is like is mighty plain, quoth he. Tis clear enough the elephant is very like a tree. The fifth who chanced to touch the ear said, E'en the blindest man can tell what this resembles most. Deny the fact who can, this marvel of an elephant is very like a fan. The sixth no sooner had began, begun about the beast to grope than seizing on the swinging tail that fell within his scope. I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a rope. And so these men of Indostan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion exceeding stiff and strong, though each was partly in the right and all were in the wrong. So often the theologic wars, the disputants, I ween, rail on in utter ignorance of what each other mean and prayed about an elephant not one of them has seen. We do tend to disagree on things, don't we? We tend to have varied perspectives And do you know that when it comes to the Word of God, sometimes perspective is an interesting thing. I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 13 this morning, and I've entitled our message today, Kingdom Snapshots, but you could also subtitle it, Kingdom Perspective. We're talking about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, both are the same in Scripture, and our Lord is teaching in parables And we're listening along and we're supposed to understand what the kingdom of heaven is like. And so he's bringing this perspective to us. And I need to warn you that in our series of 
parables today, and there are six. We've covered two so far. Uh, And by the way, last week I think I kept saying there were nine parables. There are eight parables here. In rapid fire today, our Lord is going to teach six parables. Remember, a parable is a, uh, a story that consists of common elements or earthly, earthy things that people would relate to that is used to communicate truths that are spiritual or heavenly. So we sometimes say an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And uh, the thing that I'm warning you about is that of the six parables today that our Lord is going to teach, he doesn't explain any of them. Now, we know from our previous two, which were much bigger, um, they're longer and more detailed. That was the parable of the four kinds of soil, remember? And the response of the seed on the four kinds of soil, teaching us that there are four different kinds of people who respond in four different ways inside this kingdom that Jesus is teaching about. And we're not to be surprised by these elements He then moves on to that interesting parable. I think it's very interesting, the parable of the weeds and the wheat or the tares and the wheat and uh, how that unfolds and how the evil one that is defined in the story as the devil comes and and sows weeds on top of this farmer's wheat field. And the lesson of the kingdom is that within the kingdom, you're going to have evil and good present until the end of the age, and then it will be clearly sorted and judged And we're to understand about God's kingdom from this. Well, the thing that's interesting is, as Jesus moves on and continues to teach in parables, when the disciples asked a question, they don't ask about the parables that we have today. They asked about the soil and they asked about the weeds, but they don't ask about this one. But in verse 51 of chapter 13, if you'll look at the end, when Jesus concludes this section of parabolic teaching, you'll see that Jesus asks the disciples. So instead of the disciples asking Jesus a question, Jesus asks the disciples in verse 51, have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes. And so unfortunately for us, they got it and we don't have the benefit of them, of Jesus then explaining the meaning of these parables to us. Now I say that tongue in cheek because you do know that we have a perfect word. You know that nothing was left out of the Bible. There was no explanation left out. That underneath the guidance and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew recorded exactly what he was supposed to record. But sometimes when we're studying the word, we think to ourselves, now what does that mean? And so it is interesting that as Jesus teaches perspectives about the kingdom, so it is that this is a section that a lot of different Bible students have different perspectives about. And so you'll see in your notes today that I've inserted in the bulletin that underneath these snapshots that I've called them, we have four blank lines, and we're going to do some basic Bible study together. Um, We need to be careful when we study parables. Uh, Though Jesus didn't explain these to the disciples, and the disciples at least told Jesus, I take it that they understood, maybe they didn't want to admit again that they didn't get what he was teaching, Um, But they understood. And so as we study these parables, we need to to warn ourselves not to strain at the fine details. Um, There might be some scientific point or some element uh, of it that disturbs you. 
Or you might make up parts of the story, like when we get to the mustard seed and the birds come and land in the tree, and you think, well, the birds are Satan and, and this and that, and, and well, it doesn't say that. And so what I want you to do with me today is I want you to just sit and listen to Jesus tell these stories. And let's just make some basic observations about what he's telling us. And I think that you'll agree with me that the point becomes quite clear. Now, one other element to to learning from parables and stories like this is that you're not supposed to necessarily get it all at one setting. So it's a story, and the reason it's a story is so that you can remember it. And then he uses this phrase, you know, like. The kingdom of heaven is like, and he's going to give these illustrations. And the whole idea of the story is that when you're mowing the lawn later this week or you're carpooling or whatever it is that you're doing on your, your uh, commute to work or uh, just doing housework, that you should meditate on this and you should be thinking about it. And one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit through the word of God and the parables that are rolling around is you're, you're pondering, how is the kingdom of heaven like a mustard seed? How is the kingdom of heaven like, like yeast? And you're supposed to ponder that. You're not supposed to necessarily end all, know all by the time you walk out of here this morning. But let's lay a good foundation for that and let's try to grasp what's under, what we can understand together here. Now let me point out as well though, we all don't get to just make up what it means. We want to seek what the Lord is teaching here and uh, be precise in our interpretation of scripture. I've called it kingdom snapshots because they're all very short stories. They're only one or two verses, mainly. You'll notice that they come in couplets. The first two go together. The third and the fourth one go together. And then the fifth one about the the net, the drag net that is catching fish in the sea, is really, in a lot of ways, very similar to the parable about the weeds and the wheat. And you'll recognize that when we get there. And then the final sixth one, uh, it doesn't pair up with the fifth one necessarily. It is basically a point that Jesus is making to his disciples after they told him, you do understand this, right? And they say yes. And then he says, okay, therefore, you're like a master of the house. You're responsible now for the goods of the house. In other words, with this learning and with this insight, comes a responsibility to the disciples to grow and learn and to continue to teach these matters of the kingdom. So there, that was that little parable there. We'll get to it and bump into it just briefly as we conclude the service in a few minutes. I was thinking about how much photography has changed through the years. We're calling this kingdom snapshots. I remember in junior high making a small little box camera in a photography elective that I took. This is about 1972. And we made a pinhole and we had a little piece of film and we exposed it, held the camera really still. And then we exposed it through the pinhole and then we developed it in this stinky smelling fluid. And and we just went through this great process to come up with this little black and white print of of something we had taken and... And now, if you're like 25 years or younger, you don't know what film is. And you don't wait on development. And we have our phones. We don't have cameras. And I was picturing how we, we take a lot of pictures now, don't we? And we, we grab our phone and we go like this, don't we? Looking through our pictures and we're bumping the screen and we're showing everybody our snapshots, these moments that are frozen in time. And it's a little bit what Jesus is doing to his disciples here. He's, he's kind of like holding up his phone and he's flipping through some pictures. And let me tell you what the kingdom of God is like in these little snapshots. I think you'll find this helpful. Let's look at the first snapshot. It's the story of the mustard seed. Snapshot number one, it's verse 31. Let's read together. 
without any kind of segue, he comes out of the explanation of the weeds, and Matthew just records in verse 31, he put another parable before them. So he, we don't know what kind of time lapse there is, but in this sequence together, it is somewhat related, I take it, he's doing this extensive teaching, he put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in, it, in its branches. All right, so what we need to do is we need to ask ourselves then, as we listen to Jesus teach, okay, how then is the kingdom of heaven like a mustard seed? And what is it that Jesus is saying about this mustard seed? And so what I wrote down on my first line is I'm listening and thinking clearly, don't you agree with me, that Jesus is making a contrast of the lesser to the greater. He's talking about the smallness of this seed. That's clearly something we're supposed to agree on and get out of it. So I wrote down that uh, my first line, it's the smallest seed. It's a tiny seed. Now, here's where people who are literalists can really get caught up. Here. It's like, well, Pastor Van, I took a botany class in college, and the mustard seed is not the smallest seed, and therefore Jesus is giving us bad information. So this is where we need to understand that as Jesus is teaching this first century group in Israel, that clearly all of the illustrations that are given at hand are common to them. They might not be necessarily common to us, but they're common to them. And so they would have understood a mustard seed. I think there's a picture on the screen, but it is obviously a very tiny one. And it is of the seeds that people would plant. It's not that we can't find some specimen of a bush somewhere that has a smaller seed, but it evidently was common to the people there listening to Jesus that as they planted their gardens and as they planted around their homes, that of the seeds that they planted, the mustard seed, they knew and could picture in their mind how tiny it was. They had probably held, you know, the grandpaps had held out their hands to their little children and showed them, look how tiny. And then later had pointed out to them how big that mustard plant grows. Um, they say that it gets as big as 15 feet high, commonly 10 to 15 feet high, and has bushy branches. And so I think that one thing we're supposed to get out of it is that as Jesus teaches, he immediately points out it's, it's like a grain of mustard seed. It's little. See what it says there. It is the smallest of all seeds that you plant around your house. But when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants. So I take it, the second thing I'm supposed to get out of it is that it grows big. So it's something little and tiny that gets big. That's what I put down on my second line, that it grows very large. The third thing that Jesus says that is so obvious is that the birds of the air can come and make nests in its branches. I can picture that. I don't know a lot about birds. I like birds. I like to eat birds. I like to eat bird eggs. I like to listen to birds sing. But I can picture that, can't you? I've been enjoying with the landscaping around the church here. This spring, the uh, birds are making nests, and I'm watching for that. I enjoy that. And this mustard seed is such a substantial plant that when it gets 8, 10, 12 feet high, the branches are significant enough and bushy enough that birds, evidently from the whole area, can come in and take shelter there. The idea of nesting there, that word is literally tent. 
Make a tent there. Make a home. It can be safe there. So I put down on my third line that it is a place of shelter. Okay, so let's continue our Bible study exercise here. Jesus is teaching us it's possible that he even has in his hand a, a, a mustard seed and he's pointing out something that we all know, we've all seen it, that the tiniest seed in the garden, the mustard seed, grows into the largest plant. So he wants us to know that the kingdom of heaven is something that is really small, at least at first, and that it gets big and that it's a place of shelter. I'm getting all this, are you? And by the way, in this culture and time, Rabbinical teaching was common. It was a common figure of speech to use the mustard seed to describe something very tiny. So in their own educational system, they had heard this in their literature. They could relate to that. I think when I back away and I look at it, then what else am I supposed to learn? The, the final thing that I wrote down is that this birds of the air come and they make nests in the branches. And then immediately we go to verse 33 and it's the parable of the yeast. And when I put those two together, because it seems like they fit right together, they're both lesser to greater concepts. It's a little thing that has a big impact, but the mustard seed is something that is big and obvious. And so I put down external growth, something that is very obvious is what I put down for my fourth observation. It's very obvious and it grows externally. And I got that thought when I compared it now with our snapshot number two of the hidden leaven or the hidden yeast that the lady uses. Look at verse 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven or yeast that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. So this woman is baking bread. It's a significant amount of bread. These measures, um, if you put the three measures together, most Bible commentaries agree that it amounts to a little bit over a bushel of flour. That would be a lot of bread dough. It would make a lot of bread dough. And now we're touching on another aspect of Bible study that we have to watch out for, and that is how many of us know very much about baking bread? Because if we're going to understand the point of the kingdom, you got to know something about baking bread. Now, I know that in the last few years, bread baking has made a kind of a resurgence and more people are making their own bread. But what I throw back to in my mind is about 1966 and cutting through my mother's kitchen. And there she had this certain stool that she would get out. And she had this yellow dishpan, and it was a dishpan that you better well not take outside and wash the car with or something. It was her bread pan. And it was floured, and it had the marks in there, and it was just for bread making. And my mom baked bread every week. We didn't buy bread. It was such a treat for us to buy bought bread. We called it bought bread. That when we got bought bread, white bought bread, we would butter it up when mom wasn't looking and pour white sugar all over it and eat it, man. We loved it. <laughs> Because it was like eating a, a homemade, uh, what do you call those, Twinkies, right? So oh, I'm talking about my mom. You'll have me crying now, man. So my mom's in the kitchen making bread. And, you know, then she would get a little packet and tear the packet open and stir in what? She would stir in yeast. Because what does the yeast do? The yeast permeates through the dough. She would then take that pan. It was pretty heavy. She'd make like, I don't know, eight loaves of bread at a time. Set it up on the kitchen counter. Cover it with a, a nice clean cloth and wait and wait for the bread to do what? To rise. And the yeast was what was permeating through the bread to make good light bread. Otherwise, if there wasn't yeast, then it would be real flat and heavy bread, wouldn't it? And it would be, you know, like crackers almost it would dry out. 
Oh, that was good bread. And when the yeast took and the yeast was alive and it, it worked and it worked through all the bread. And the only thing I can think of, and this doesn't have anything to do with the message, is how good that bread was when it came out of the oven. Do you know that? And it's hot and you cut that off and you put butter and strawberry. But man, I'm really digressing. So let's. Well, that's what this lady's doing. This lady is baking bread. It would be a picture that everybody in the audience understood. And this little bit of yeast permeates. Let's make a few observations and then we'll contrast and I'll show you what I mean by my final observation of the mustard seed. But clearly Jesus is talking about something hidden, isn't he? That's what I wrote down on my first line. This is something hidden. Notice what he says. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven. And she hid it. She tucked it in and put it aside so that that yeast, you see what they did, they didn't have packets of yeast from the store that they could dump into their bread dough. They would take the live dough, the live yeast dough, and they would save it, and I think keep it in a dark place, and then, and then when you had your next bread baking, you would put that yeast bread dough in with your new dough, set it aside, and then that yeast would go through all of your bread. Isn't that interesting? And there it was, and it made good bread. And, but it, the idea there, the picture is that this yeast is something that she just tucked away. It's hidden. I think that's observation number one. I think it's clear that he wants us to know that it spread through all of the flour, all of the bread dough, took the yeast. And so my second observation is that it, it spread through everything. It spread. And I put down the third thought that I had, and you can make up your own here if you wanted, but the idea was that nothing was unaffected by it. In other words, there wasn't parts of the bread that was yeast and part of it that wasn't. All of the bread was affected. See, I'm learning lessons about the kingdom and it's like yeast and it's going to permeate and it's small and it's hidden and it quietly does its work, but it gets everywhere. And nothing is unaffected by it. And I, my final observation was that it created an, an internal change. And this is where I contrast the two. The mustard seed was a place that it grew into a plant that provided shelter for birds. And that was really obvious, the external, that, that people could see it and they could come. And it seems to me that there's a contrast in the teaching here between something that is very noticeable and something that is hidden away, but both have significant influence. And that's point number one of our outline today, the improbable influence of the kingdom. That's what I think Jesus is talking about. He's talking about this little tiny baby that was born in a manger to introduce this kingdom that started in a barn and nobody even knew it happened. And by the time he was nailed to a cross, he had a handful of followers. You could just about count them all on your hands and your feet. And he's been telling this story about the weeds and the tares and the evil one fighting against this kingdom. And the disciples are wanting to know, is this kingdom even going to survive? And Jesus tells them another parable about this kingdom. You might think it's little now, but you wait and see. And it's going to provide shelter from those all around. And it's going to be very noticeable. And on the other hand, it has a change agent to it. It has a quiet, effective work that goes on in the heart and it permeates everything about you. I think that makes good sense to you. Can I tell you, don't get your head cut off for what birds of the mustard seed tree are or anything like that. But don't be ridiculous in your approach to Scripture. Just let the Word of God speak. Let's continue to study. That is the improbable influence of the kingdom. It seems so unlikely 
that this carpenter from Nazareth would be the king of this great kingdom. And when you read the end of the story, how unlikely is it that the one born in the barn is the one riding the great horse with the sword out of his mouth that conquers all? The second point that we want to make is the next section of parables that we'll get to. There are verses in, in verse 44 through 46. It's the incomparable importance of the kingdom. The incomparable importance of the kingdom. But before we look there, let's notice that Matthew includes then a reminder of why Jesus is teaching in parables in verses 34 and 35. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. So this is a change, a transition in the ministry style of our Lord. And he's now teaching in in this guarded, almost like you could say code language. And not everyone's getting it. And this was to fulfill, verse 35, what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. So this truths about the kingdom have been tucked away in God's plan since the foundation of the world. And now here at this time when the king is being introduced, he's teaching about this great spiritual kingdom and truth that has been hidden since the foundation of the world is now being revealed to his disciples. It's pretty neat. I really enjoy uh, the New Testament scholar and his commentary set. Um, It's William Hendrickson. It's Hendrickson and Kistemacher are the two that put together the New Testament commentary series. And I appreciate very much the assistance that they give me in my sermon preparation. And William Hendrickson has two rhyming words that he uses for verses 34 and 35 as to why Jesus speaks in parables. Uh, The first word is revealing. He does it to reveal truth. And remember that those who have ears to hear will hear. Those who want to hear, those who love Christ, those who are embracing the king, those who want to enter the kingdom, they are receiving the word from the king and it's revealing to them. But also remember at the very same time, those who have turned against him, those who don't want to accept him, those who deny the fact that he's Messiah, it's concealing to them. Revealing and concealing. He speaks in parables to reveal and he speaks in parables at the very same time to conceal. So it's like this. If you want to follow Jesus and you care about his message and you believe that he's the Messiah and you have ears to hear, like the disciples, when he speaks in these parables, the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the word of God will make sense to you. If you reject Christ, and you know people like this, they hear the word of God, they hear Jesus' name mentioned, they hear the teaching of Christ, and to them, it's the same as this in their ears. Blah, 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 blah. The Bible makes no sense to them, Jesus makes no sense to them, and the fact of the matter is, they don't want him to make sense to them. And so it is concealed from them. But those who have ears, let them hear. I'll tell you, especially some young people that might be here today, if you don't care beans from buckshot about what the Bible says or about what your granny's telling you about Scripture and it's just kind of like the Bible's blah, 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 blah to you, you need to examine your heart. And you need to be really careful to not, in a way, reject Jesus by your carelessness or your callousness. And you need to be a seeker of the truth One of the principles that's in Scripture, regularly taught in Scripture, that if you seek Him, you will find Him. 
And it's an interesting concept. And so to reveal and to conceal. We then have the parable of the weeds explained in the next section, verses 36 through 43. And we've already been there. And that brings us to our next couplet of parables, these two. The parable of the hidden treasure and the parable of the pearl of great value is what the title is. And so snapshot number three under Roman numeral two in our outline of the importance of the kingdom, the incomparable importance of the kingdom Snapshot number three is the treasure in the field. Now, this kind of messes with people's minds a little bit, too, because they always want to, like, get into legalese and they want to think, now, was it really ethical what this guy did? And was it really, was it right? Did he have lack integrity? Or what? I think the guy totally was honest, myself, because he actually went and bought the field before he took the treasure. So, yes, he had integrity, but this is also a lesson for us and a warning about parables. Jesus isn't talking about landowner rights in the parable. He's not talking about botany in the mustard seed parable. He's just using it as an illustration. He's just telling a story, and again, all of the people in the community could understand. Now, Jesus would not teach something unethical. Let me Don't mistake me here. But the point is you can start straining at the details of the story, and that's not even what it's about. But putting it in the context of the times and the, and the audience that were listening at this place in Israel, listen, for centuries they had had warring and bandit tribes and kingdoms and nations taking over and coming and overthrowing, building up and tearing down. And what would people do? Okay, if they heard that old Nebuchadnezzar was going to sweep through from Babylon and he was going to take away all of their stuff, pops would run out and bury a box of his best stuff his good hunting and knife and his jewelry, his wife's jewelry and his pocket watch, and he would hide all his treasures in the ground and bury them, but then they got killed. Or the whole area was taken over and they were never able to reclaim their land, and so it was not uncommon. I don't think it happened every day to every family, but it was on occasion people would literally find hidden treasure in their fields because of this kind of thing, because of a warring tribe that would come through or another kingdom that was overthrowing their the occupants there, like Nebuchadnezzar, for example, and they found it buried. We don't know anything about this guy. We don't know if he's employed by the landowner. All we know is that he's in this field. That's all we need to know. He's in a field and he finds a treasure. Let's read it. The kingdom of heaven, verse 44, is like treasure hidden in a field. All right, so that's the part I'm supposed to think about. How is the kingdom of heaven like a treasure in a field? Now he's going to give me just a little bit more information, which a man found and covered up. So he might have been plowing or something and it was exposed. And people think if he was doing that, he should have told his master about it. Well, I don't know. Then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys the field. So here's what I wrote down when I read that. I think what we have here, number one, is an unexpected find. He was like surprised by this, I think. How is the kingdom of heaven like a treasure that a man happens to uncover in the field. And we don't know if he was walking along and his stick poked the ground and he heard a hollow thump and he realized something was there and he investigated and he finds this treasure box. Or if his plow opened up the top of the earth, ripped off the top of the box or something, and there it is. But unexpectedly, he finds that of great value by accident. Clearly, the second thing I wrote down is that Jesus wants us to realize it is of great value. Wouldn't you agree that that is definitely something Jesus wants us to get out of this? That the treasure in the ground is of great value. 
The third thing I think that you can't miss out of the parable is that Jesus is teaching that in the kingdom of heaven, there is something that is so valuable that it outweighs all other values of your life. And so he's telling us that the third thing I wrote is that the guy gives up everything to gain the treasure. He gives up everything to gain the treasure. And look what he does. He goes home. Ma, where you at, Mabel? Get all the stuff. Get your china. Get your silverware. I'm cleaning the garage. I'm backing the truck up. And they sell everything. Sell the house. Sell the dog. Sell the cat. Because we have found something that is so, so valuable that, that none of this compares. Forget this stuff. I've got to find. Don't you, don't you think that's what the point is? The kingdom of heaven possesses treasure that is so valuable that the kingdom of this earth cannot compare to it. And I think the fourth thing I wrote down is that clearly this is the defining moment of the guy's life. Everything in his life changes. It reminds me of 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. I have found something that is so precious and so good and so new that all the old has got to go because I've got to have this. You know, like unto it is the next parable, the parable of the pearl of great value. It's our fourth snapshot. And notice this is similar but different. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Okay, so in the, in the parable of the treasure box, see, these fit together. And we learn by putting them against each other. The parable of the box in the ground, he found it by accident. And so the first observation I make about the pearl is that it was discovered by a determined search. It was, it was intentionally sought out. This guy is a pearl hunter. This guy knows pearls. This guy's somewhat of an expert on pearls all around the world. And he knows about Buddhist pearls, and he knows about, he knows about Mormon pearls, and he knows about Roman Catholic pearls, and he knows about Hindu pearls, and he knows about Muslim pearls. And all of a sudden, he found Jesus pearl. And he realizes there's no pearl that compares to this pearl. He's at this yard sale or whatever, and he's in, you know, you love to do that, don't I do? Janet hates it, but I really like to get into junk, man. And you're looking through this stuff, you know. And all of a sudden, man, look at that right there. That's a knife exactly like the one my dad had. I'm buying that. You don't need another knife. Well, I don't care. <laughs> I just found something I really, really like here. This guy's digging through a gob of jewelry. Can't you see it at a flea market? How the jewelry's all gobbed up. And most of it's junk, you know. It's not worth melting down into, you know, airsoft BBs. And, and you're like looking at it. And all of a sudden, man, the guy realizes what he has. He runs home, tells Mabel, to, his wife's not Mabel, you know, Melva. He tells Melva, sell everything. I found it. Sell all the pearls that we've collected to date. Everything that I've lined up in my pearl collection is no good. This is the one. And so what I see here, he, it was a determined search. Secondly, it clearly was of great value. You have to get that out of it. Thirdly, he also gives up everything to gain. And fourthly, like the treasure box in the ground, doesn't this have to be the defining moment of the guy's life? 
Everything changes from this day on. I think what Jesus is clearly emphasizing is the great value, the incomparable importance of the kingdom. And he's stressing it to the disciples and he's stressing it to us. Well, the next one stands alone and it's very much like the parable. The wording of it will remind you it's almost parts of it in a direct quote from the concluding points of Jesus' explanation of the wheat and the weeds our fifth snapshot, our fifth snapshot is of the fishing net. This is verses 47 to 50. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. I want to tell you, there is no end to the speculation in Bible commentaries of what that means, what we just read. What's good? What's bad? Who are the men that are sorting the fish? What's in the net? What gathered up in the net? I don't know. I'll tell you what. I think part of the meaning of it, though, is caught in the introduction to verse 49. I don't think you're going to worry too much about it. He says, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. Evidently, his audience could picture fishermen along the Sea of Galilee or there at the Mediterranean, and they would use these cast nets or they would take the end of a net in a boat and gather it around and bring it together on itself and cup it and drag it in. Up on the Yukon River where I commercial salmon fished, we used drift nets, 100 yards long, 300 feet net, string it out and just drift for about an hour and let the fish in the muddy water hit the net and get caught by their gills. And then we would pull it in. And every once in a while, you find stuff that isn't supposed to be in there. It might be a stick. Throw it away. It might be some other kind of bad fish. Pink salmon. We threw pink salmon for fun. We didn't, there was no market. We were fishing for king and silver. When a pink salmon came in there, man, they're soft-fleshed, nasty little fish. I always smile at the store because all the time the canned salmon is pink salmon. I thought, we'd throw that stuff away. We wouldn't eat it. And we'd grab them by the tail and see who could throw them the farthest. And when you throw them, their whole spine goes. I don't, I don't know what that is, but I think they swim after they hit the water. That's what they're doing. They got this net full of stuff. And they can picture, the audience can picture the fishermen getting rid of. And don't worry about who the men are. Don't worry about what they're casting out of their net. It's, it's going to look like that sorting out by the angels In the last day, in the final age, angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's talking about people, not fish now. Just like he was talking about people, not weeds. Because when you let your eyes go over, don't you see almost the identical description Verse 41, the Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. That's simply the picture of all the junk that got gathered into the net. In other words, the kingdom of heaven, God's kingdom here on earth has all kinds of stuff in it. Genuine, authentic, inauthentic, hypocrites, sinners, some who are for real, 
and the kingdom, all causes of sin and lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace, verse 42. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There it is, almost identical. Identical. So I put down on my first line under the fishing net that there's this, there's this large variety of people in the kingdom. This, the net contains lots of stuff. And you got to kind of think through, what does he mean by that? It clearly, I put on my second line, is a picture of the end of the age. His point is it's about the end of the age. The third line I put down was that Jesus clearly wants us to know that his angels will separate evil from good. Just like fishermen throwing away pink salmon and keeping good Chinook salmon. And kings. And the fourth line I put down was to remind myself that evil will be judged extremely harsh. Harshly. This gnashing of teeth imagery again. And the fire and the burning. It's a warning. It's a warning. It is possible to be in the kingdom, to posture and to not be for real, to be a bad fish, to be a weed. And part of what you want to do is you want to know, have you given up everything in your life for the treasure? I take it that the treasure can represent Christ in this kingdom and the gospel and that the gospel and Jesus are worth more than anything else in my life. And that like yeast, it's to permeate my life and take over. Jesus isn't something I stick in my hip pocket. And the final parable is the new and old treasures. Verse 51, he says to the disciples, have you understood all these things? And he said to him, yes. They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, since you understand, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Again, you get lots of speculation. What in the world is he talking about? The best conclusion I can come to is that the scribes that are trained here are the disciples. It's Jesus referencing his disciples. I've been training you, and you say you understand this, and the kingdom of heaven then is like you scribes now are like you students. You're like the master of the house, and you're in charge of all the treasure, and there's old and there's new, and he's putting together what they would have understood of Old Testament teaching, perhaps, and New Covenant teaching that he's going to talk about. This, these truths of the kingdom that have been hidden since the foundation of the earth that Asaph the psalmist, I forgot to point that out, back up in 35, that's Asaph the psalmist, that's a direct quote from Psalm 78, verse 2. And I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. There's old things that we all knew and there's new things and you're responsible now. Like a master of the house is responsible for the treasures of that house. You are now responsible for everything that you know. And he's, that is a direct word to the disciples and to his disciples in general. So you're mowing your lawn, you're washing the dishes and you're thinking to yourself, now Pastor Van said that I'm supposed to keep thinking about these parables because they are pretty weird. What then? Jesus didn't give us the answer. So here's a couple concluding applicable thoughts that might help you. First of all, I think one of the things we get out of this teaching of Christ through parables is that the kingdom of heaven was launched in insignificance, but it continues to grow in influence and blessing all around the world every day. Listen, we are not on the losing team. The kingdom of God is not a failed project. And everywhere you go, it is right there in front of you. 
If you go to, to parts ruined along our coastline, who's there? Samaritan Purse is there. They're rebuilding neighborhoods. And you walk up to them and you say, who are you? And we say, we're from First Baptist Church in Kanatuck, Ohio. And we're out here in the name of Jesus rebuilding your house. There's the kingdom of God right there, wide open. And if you were staggering out of your little village in Togo, West Africa, and you had a problem, and, and you are so sick, and you're shaking, and you're sweating, and you can't get well, and you walk up to this little hospital in Togo, Africa, and Dr. Mike Gale is there, he greets you in Jesus' name, and he says, come into my hospital, and let me give you some medicine, and let me tell you about Jesus. And right there, wide open, is the mustard tree, and, and the bird comes and lands in it. It's right there. And we could go on and on. In the Ukraine this morning, a guy named Vlad, who graduated from Appalachian Bible College, runs a Bible Institute with Titus International Ministries. He's a great guy. Ukraine's a mess. Parts of it are blowing up, you know, and there's fighting going on, and it's a beautiful country and beautiful people. And Vlad is there this morning teaching, teaching Christ and feeding the hungry and providing shelter for the bombed out ones. And there it is. There's the mustard tree. And so this little baby that was born in a barn that seemed really, really unobtrusive becomes this great king and the king of a kingdom that is spreading and it's out there and it's everywhere and you can't beat it down and it's going to grow up bigger than all the other kingdoms and ultimately it's the kingdom that's going to triumph over all kingdoms and there it is and you find rest in its branches. The second thing is that in a, in a gradual, quiet way, this kingdom spreads its way all around the world and in our hearts. Make sure you add in our hearts here. That's the yeast. It's quiet. It, it doesn't look like it, but I used to know that guy. And the yeast of the kingdom and the gospel of Jesus has permeated his life and it has quietly, when no one was watching, totally transformed that guy. In fact, nobody even knows who he is anymore. And he's become a brand new creation in Christ. Our dear brother Brett Sigler sings that song from 2 Corinthians 5.17, I'm not the man I used to be. How his buddies come and ask him to go out with him, and he doesn't do that anymore because the yeast has been quietly changing his life. And it permeates, and it takes over every part, and, and you lay down everything for the cause. If you want to follow after me, Jesus said, right? Take up your cross daily. and Set aside the flesh. Set aside the things of this world. In verse number three on our application, some find, and you could write quotes around the word find, Christ, suddenly, as if by accident, and it transforms their lives. I, I think that's part of what the treasure chest story is about. Saul of Tarsus is a good illustration. I know God found him. He wasn't even looking for God, but neither was my good friend Alonzo Puller, who usually sits right in here. At 2 o'clock in the morning after partying and clubbing down here on 340 by Jefferson High School as he stopped at a traffic light about 16 years ago at 2 o'clock in the morning, not even thinking, all of a sudden he became overwhelmed with the fear of God and the image of his mother at her bedside praying for his salvation. And he cries out to God for forgiveness of his night of sin and his life of sin. And all of a sudden he doesn't even know he's found the pearl. He's found the treasure chest. He found the treasure chest. He wasn't even looking for it, and it found him. He stumbled into it. But number four is that some find Christ after diligent, thoughtful searching, and it transforms their lives. 
And that's the guy who, you know, is arguing with his friends in philosophy class. He says, you know, if you can, if you can prove to me the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then I'll show you, you know, that I'll become a Christian. Lee Strobel, remember the story from Easter? That was him, right? Investigative reporter for Chicago Tribune. So, hey, I've been searching. I know a lot about pearls. I know a lot about all pearls. And then as he searches, he finds the great pearl. How God uses that. There is finally, number five, coming an inescapable day of final judgment. Listen, it ought to be a little scary. The angels are going to come and they're going to carry out the discerning, winnowing judgment. And it's a final judgment and there's weeping and fiery pain and gnashing of teeth. What a kingdom this is. So your job is to keep thinking about it. Your job is to figure out if you're a a good fish or a bad fish or a weed or a wheat and make sure you're in the kingdom, right? Our job is to look at this pearl or this box of treasure and ask ourselves, is it really the most important thing in my life? Because in kingdom living and living for Christ, he has to be everything, my all in all. You are my all in all, right? Be good to sing that right now. And so you've got to let this roll around and let the parabolic teachings of Christ transform you. Will you stand and close in prayer with me, please? If we can be of assistance to you or spiritual counsel, we'd sure love to talk to you. Feel free to stay after. And so, Father, you know our hearts and our minds. You know, you know the weeds from the wheat, the good fish from the bad fish. Father, I just pray that... Um, these parables would indeed rattle around and roll around our thinking and that you would continue to shed light on what it means to be part of your kingdom and what the kingdom of God is like. Father, thank you for the great transforming power of the gospel and that precious pearl, that great treasure in Christ that's worth more than all else put together. Father, would you help us to be treasure seekers? Would you help us to have our priorities straight this week as kingdom livers? Help us to be the men and women that you've called us to be. We commit this week to you in Jesus' name. Amen.